Turn together to the book of Genesis. This morning we will be looking at the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11. And as with so much of this book, it is a very familiar story. Many of you could recite the story to me from heart. Maybe not word for word from the scripture, but substance for substance. And so as we look now at this text, let us pay attention to what the Lord is teaching us in it. If you would now please give attention to the reading of the very Word of God. The Word of the Lord is completely infallible. It is completely authoritative. And it is completely sufficient. Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we ask that You would use this word to change us, to direct us, and to teach us that You alone, O Lord, are God and King. And that only by Jesus Christ can we have true community. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. As is my custom, I welcomed the community and the world at large to our service this morning using that prototypical modern component, Facebook. And I announced what we, that we were having the Lord's Supper and electing officers and that I would be preaching on Genesis 11. And the title of the sermon, as you can see in your bulletin, is Stairway to Heaven. And it took about five minutes before somebody caught me on my pop culture reference. Now, this is one of these songs that even the young among us seem to know because it is, I think, the most played rock song of all time on the radio. 
Right now, we could probably get on the dial and switch around and find it playing somewhere. And it's an interesting song, kind of an introspective song, that talks about a woman. The opening lines are, there is a woman who thinks all that glitters is gold, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. And we listen to this song, and we think, isn't that just like the rich people? Think that they can get whatever they want, that they can actually buy their way into heaven. I think that perhaps today, if this song was written, it would spark another 99% protest. We look and we see somehow the problem is those people over there, they're bad, they're wicked, they do the wrong things. They think they can escape the, the system. They think they can escape accountability. When in reality, every single one of us is buying a stairway to heaven. We may not be buying it with money. We may be tempted to buy it with good deeds. We may be tempted to buy it with Bible memorization. We may be tempted to buy it with our family. We may be tempted to buy it with our job. But you see, buying a stairway to heaven is caught up in the heart of man. It's a natural reaction to the world. And this is perhaps the most vivid example of this in all of the Scriptures because they actually are building a stairway of sorts to heaven. But we're going to see here that this is not just about some people who lived in the land of Shinar thousands of years ago. This is about the heart of man and God's reaction to it. So this morning I would like us to see two simple things from this text. First, we will see man's rebellion against God. And it is man's. It is not just this group's. And then second, we will see God's sovereign response to this rebellion. Because you see, the Lord is not silent. He speaks in His Word, but He also speaks in judgment. Man's rebellion and God's response. Let's begin then by looking here at a bit of what is going on in the beginning of this text. Let's lay a little context here. Now, remember here that all of the world at this point is speaking one language. Now, lest you be a bit surprised by that, remember that the whole of the world has come from one family. So it would make sense that they all speak the same language. And time after time, historical, scientific, and archaeological data bears this out in other cultures, there are records of a single language. And it just makes sense given the way that the world has come about. And the Bible now is telling us this story about how the world came to be one of many languages. And Genesis has an interesting feature. Last week we looked at that wonderful uh, gene- genealogy of the three sons of, of Noah. And in each genealogy... It ends with this phrase, these are the sons by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So the Bible has already told us that there are a whole bunch of groups of people who speak different languages. And now it is going to explain why that is the case. So the Bible here is teaching us something about Genesis 10. That's the immediate context. But it is also teaching us something about the history of redemption. 
of what God is doing with His people. So man begins here, our text says, by migrating from the east, by coming to a land, a plain named Shinar. Now, if you've never heard of Shinar, that's okay. You could picture it very easily. Shinar is Babylon. It is the area of Iraq and Iran. This is the fertile valley between the Tigris and the Euphrates. And this is where they come and they settle. And it's no surprise that they do. It's a fertile valley. It is a plain. And they begin to lay out a city. But right from the beginning, it is a city designed in rebellion against God. Do you remember who built this city? We looked at that last week. This is a city that is founded by Nimrod, who was known for his rebellion against God, his high-handed rebellion against God, that he did not need the Lord. And so they begin with cracked foundations. They begin to gather together and to build a city against God. This is seen in their actions. Because the text tells us that they migrate from the east, they come together to this city, and they are trying to build a city so that they might all stay together. Do you see this here? They say in verse 4, We need to build the city lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There's only one significant problem with this. It's in direct contradiction to the command of God. God had said in Genesis 1 verse 28 that mankind was to be fruitful and to multiply and to do what? Fill the earth. Not to gather together in one tiny enclave. And in case man did not get this after the flood, he repeats it again in Genesis 9 verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And here man is saying, God, we know what you have said, but no way. We're not going to do it. We have a better idea. We think we'll be happier this way. If this isn't the story of man's heart, I don't know what is. You see, sin is not the result of us not knowing God's law not knowing God's commands. Sin is the result of us knowing it and shaking our fist at God and saying, we will have it our own way. This is what we want, isn't it? We don't want to be beholden to anyone in the whole world. We want everything our way. And so they gather together. And they gather together to build and they decide to build for themselves a monument. They say, what should we do? Let's build a city, but better than a city, we need to build a tower. Something that will be seen for miles and miles around. Something that will be obvious how great we are. So that when someone comes and visits, we could point and we could say, you see, look at that tower. It goes all the way up to the heavens. Do you see how great we are? Do you see how much better we are than you? We never see that in the world today, do we? We see it everywhere. But you see, that's what they do. They begin to build, and this building is not simply about technology. It's not simply about engineering. This building is about self-glory. And Moses has a very interesting way of letting us in on the joke, as it were, 
of what a joke it is to try and glorify oneself above God. The language here is very emphatic. Come, let us make bricks. Come, let us build a city. Come, let us do this. These are what are called, in technical grammatical terms, cohortatives. It's a commandment you give yourself. Now, we don't use phrases like let us anymore, do we? But we use let's. We don't say come in a very formal way, but we say come on, let's do this. Right? It's still built in our hearts. And the language here is very intensive. They say let us brick bricks and let us burn burning. It's a very intense way in Hebrew by repeating words that makes you understand they're really trying to convince themselves this is the best thing to do. Have you ever had that instance or occasion? Maybe you're trying to build something out in the yard, do some landscaping. Or maybe you're thinking of remodeling the house. Or maybe you're, you're taking uh, some difficult schoolwork and you have to actually kind of talk yourself through it. You convince yourself. Now, I don't have a spy cam in your house, but I imagine... At one time in your life, you have sat somewhere and said, come on, you can do it. This isn't that hard. Come on, put your mind to it. That's exactly what they're doing. They're not convinced that they can, and they need to kind of screw up the courage to do it. And then they say, we have a great idea. Let's make bricks and build a tower. Now, you have to understand the context here. Moses is writing this book. And he is writing it, the very first audience are the Israelites that are going to the promised land from Egypt. What was their job in Egypt? Their job was to build the pyramids. And they did make bricks, but they also knew that if you really wanted to build a big structure, you don't use bricks. You use stone. They were stonemasons as well. Think about it. How many 40, 50, 60 story brick buildings do you know of? You just don't do it. And so Moses is letting us in on the joke. They're saying, we can do this. We're going to build it to the sky. And we're going to use twigs. Okay. And what are you going to use to hold them together? Well, you know what? We've got this great stuff. It's called bitumen. Now, you look and you say, what in the world is bitumen? You see bitumen all the time. Bitumen is sticky, smelly, asphalt, tar. Have you ever driven down a highway while the road crews are working? And they're laying down that asphalt and the big machine comes and it rolls and the heating machine comes and you can't roll your windows down because it stinks to high heaven. That's what they're using. They're not using mortar. They're not using really proper building materials. They're using just what is at hand. They think they can overcome the difficulties by using these things. So Moses is letting us right in on the front to tell us this is sheer folly. There is no way that they can do this. They're using inferior materials. Now, you have to remember this. We'll need that in a minute. 
when we look at God's response. So man is trying to do this even though it will not work. And the reason why man is doing it is it's a reflection of man's heart. This is not about a building program. This is about self-satisfaction and self-glorification. The very first thing we see about this building program is that it exemplifies man's pride. You see, the people here begin by not looking to God. Why do they want to build this? They want to build it so that they could make a name, what? For themselves. That's the purpose. They want to make a name for themselves apart from God. They don't want to be known as the children of God. They don't want God to name them. They don't want God to control them. They want to be in charge of their own destiny. And this is important because the Bible speaks about names in a very clear way. It is God who is in charge of names. It is God who does the naming. He names Adam. He names Abraham. He names Jacob Israel. If you think about it, Mary and Joseph did not even get to pick Jesus' name. He was named by God. And so the people here are saying to themselves, we can take care of this. We don't need God to give us a name. We don't need to find our worth in the Lord. We can find it in ourselves. Come, let's build a city and a tower and everyone will see how independent we are. This streak runs through you and me. It runs through you and me in ways that we must mortify, put to death. Ways that seem pious. Oh, no, no, I don't need any help. No, 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 no. no. You don't need to help me. I I, I can handle this. Someone comes up and tries to minister to us, tries to assist us, tries to work with us. And we, oh, no, 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 I've got this. I can handle it. I don't need anyone or anything. Now, we may not say those words, but that's what's in our hearts. We tend to think that we are in control, and then we fall into despair when we realize we're not in control. The safer course is to avoid pride altogether and to cast ourselves upon the Lord to know that we cannot do it by ourselves. Pride. But more than pride, even, there is disobedience. You see, the people here thought that they knew better and they acted upon it. They would not trust God. God had told them that they were to go out and fill the earth and they said to themselves, that plan won't work. We need to come up with a better plan. We see this everywhere here today. God tells us that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. That is my plan. And we say, no, Lord, we've got it better than you. We can monkey with marriage. And even if we stand for traditional marriage, we we think that marriage is not always needing to be between one man and one woman. We can have serial polygamy. Divorce upon divorce upon divorce. Or we think, you know, Lord, this thing about not stealing or not hurting others... You know, you really haven't thought about the modern world. You can't get along in the modern world without bending a few commandments. 
And you see, this kind of disobedience takes root in our heart. And it becomes technicolor here with the people in Shinar because they will not serve God and they begin then to create a monument to, a, to their false religion. They build this tower and say it will go into the heavens. It will take us to God. We will be God, is what they're saying. They are defying God. This type of pride and disobedience continues on today. We see it in the philosophy of self-esteem. The only way that we can get our own worth is from ourselves. That's not true. The Bible says we have worth in the eyes of the Son of God. That we have so much worth that He came to this earth, lived a perfect life, walked a walk of pain to a death that He did not deserve. Because we are worth it. That's where our worth comes from. We see it in the way that we try and take control of life. Everywhere today, there are scientists puttering around in labs, trying to control, make, and manipulate life. No respect at all for the creator of life, but rather thinking that they can do it better. Do you know that every year, scores, thousands, perhaps millions of girls are aborted in lands along the globe? For the crime of being a girl. Because families don't want daughters. They want sons. And now with technology, we can find out if we're going to have a son or a daughter. And that is good and cute when we're trying to decide what to paint the nursery. But not when we are trying to decide who should live and who should die. It's the same kind of pride and disobedience that we see at Babel is found in our boardrooms, in our science rooms, and in our hospitals today. We see it in the encroaching godlike power of the state, seeking to provide all things on its terms, seeking to move religion exceedingly out, not only of the public square, but out of our lives, to control everything. And the church doesn't escape this either. You see, there is a cry in the church that's like the cry at Babel, come, let us come together, let us be all together. That's the important thing. We don't need to obey God. It's important to be unified, to be united. So rather than listen to God's Word, we seek to smooth over all differences, to have superficial unity. This is what is the sin of man. And this expresses itself in man's desire to have community apart from God. You see, we are built for community. Babel shows us this. But where we will not have God at the center of our community, there is a vacuum. And so we need to convince ourselves there's a reason to stay together. And so at the midst, think of the irony here. In Babel, they are trying to to convince each other that they can build the greatest structure in the history of the world. There's nothing they can't do. We'll build this tower for the heavens and, and we better do it because then we might, if we don't, we might not stay together. You see, they're all afraid. 
They want that safety in numbers. They want that pack mentality, that mob mentality, because they have no worth, they have no meaning individually. They need this community to tell them what to do. And this is found in a godless community and structure that we see in Babylon. And it goes throughout all of the Bible. This is where it begins. We see it in the Babylon that attacks Judah and brings it into exile. We see it in the Babylon that oppresses Daniel and his compatriots. We even providentially saw it this morning in Zechariah 5. Where was wickedness taken to? The basket full of wickedness. To Shinar. To Babylon. And of course, in the book of Revelation, Babylon becomes the personification, the the compilement of all that is against God. All that seeks to build itself up apart from God. This is man. But praise be to God that although man is man, God is God. And so we see here, in response, God's sovereign response to rebellion. And we see that just as man was acting, God is also active. Look with me here at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. And in verse 6, He says, Come, or excuse me, in verse 7, He says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language. God will not ignore the rebellion, pride, and sin of man. He acts. You may think that you can get sin on the sly and God won't take notice of it. You may convince yourself that God has bigger things to be concerned about, hurricanes and tornadoes and nations. But the Lord God sees everything. This also gives us some perspective about the God who acts. Because the people in China are saying, we're going to build this massive tower, the biggest thing that has ever been seen. It's going to stretch up into the heavens. And then what does God say? Well, I'm going to have to go down so that I can see it. Because from where I am, I can't see your tiny speck of a tower. I'm so far above you and that work is so small that I have to come down to see it. Now, we have an appreciation for this, I think, more than perhaps even the first readers. Even the children among us, if you've ever been in an airplane and you fly from above and you look at big things, swimming pools look like what? Droplets of water. Homes look like little monopoly pieces. Right? Everything looks tiny. It's a perspective. You see, God says, you are not doing so great a thing. I know what is great. And I will come down and I will see. And God here is proving that He will not be mocked. He's actually mocking them. He knows that the type of individuality, the type of autonomy, the type of distance from God that the people here want to have is impossible. And so what he does is he comes down and he acts. He will not permit man to go on. This is very similar to what he does in the Garden of Eden. There comes a point where God stops man in his sinful tracks. 
He stops man from going over the edge. From walking completely into destruction. And he comes down and he disturbs their language. So much so that they leave off from building. They, they can't speak anymore. They can't build. Which proves that you can't have a construction project, I guess, with more than one language. I don't think it's just about the language, though, because we see people work who don't speak the same language. We see it every day here in Houston. There's some who speak English, some who speak Spanish. But I think what God is getting at here is, in this building project, everyone was so prideful, they wanted to be in charge, there was no hierarchy, they began immediately fighting. They all thought their way should be the way. They all thought they should be in charge. You see, God acts this way because He knows the heart. He knows that this building of this tower is just a symptom of the problem. It is not just about a city being built. It is about them building a city of man. A city that would oppose God. And God knows that the human mind separated from an obedience to Him from the heart, is exceedingly dangerous. If we think about it, man is exceedingly technologically, knowledgeably inclined. We have invented all sorts of things. But set apart from a heart that obeys God, we can invent things like the most efficient execution gas chamber system ever. We can invent the best tools to spy on citizens, to control them. You see, apart from a heart that obeys God, our ingenuity, our technology is used as an expression of the wickedness of our heart. Progress is not the end all, beloved. The world would have you think so, that all of our problems will just be solved by the next iteration of the iPhone. By the next iteration of insulation or the next type of car, or the next type of educational theory. That is not the, solve, the resolution of the problem. You see, God knows that when the heart is not captivated by Him, that no type of wickedness is impossible. That's what God is getting at here. He says here in chapter 11, and in... Verse 6. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, God is not saying here they're going to rival Him. That they're going to build mountains after they build this tower. That they're going to dig out seas after they do this. That they're going to be able to be like God. Because we've already said, they're trying to build a tower with La Brea tar pit slime and clay bricks. I mean, be real. This thing is going to make the Leaning Tower of Pisa look 90 degrees straight. What God is saying here is that if this continues to go 
that no type of wickedness will be beyond them. They will be encouraged in their wickedness. They will try to rebel yet more. They will show more evil and wickedness toward each other. And I must step in now and stop this. And he does. He steps in and he shows them that apart from him, they can't even do something as simple as talk to each other. The reminder to them, as well as to us, that the very means of communication that we have is dependent on God. God acts. God knows the heart. But God also is a solution for this sense of community that is lacking here in Shinar. God is the source of true community. You see, He is showing them the folly of what they are doing. And he, again, Moses has a very neat way of doing this. In Hebrew, you remember that I've told you that there are just consonants. There are no vowels. They're just dots. In Hebrew, the letters for brick, if you reverse them, are the letters for confuse. So God is taking what they're building and turning it upside down on them. He's saying, you think you're building. No, you're not. You're confusing. I'm in charge. He's showing them how vain it is to rebel against them. How vain it is to be apart from Him. Because you see, God is the great centralizing force in our life. Have you ever wondered why American society seems to be fragmenting? Families falling apart. Neighborhoods that where people never see each other. Workplaces where people come in and they sit in a cubicle and don't talk to one another. It's because the centralizing tenant of all of life is the person of God. You take God out of the middle and it's like a giant centrifuge spinning around, spinning around, spinning us off. We can try and make up other principles to keep us together. But it is only the Lord, it is only Jesus Christ that binds the people of God together. We have that answer in the New Testament. It's very interesting. You all know that I am not much of a church calendar guy. But I found it very interesting and providential, and I did not design this, that today in the church calendar is designated the Sunday of Pentecost. 50 days after Easter. Turn with me if you would to Acts chapter 2. It is the Sunday of Pentecost and it is at Pentecost where we see God showing that He is the central figure, that Jesus Christ is the figure that binds people together because what He does here in chapter 2 is he takes people from every land and every nation, speaking all kinds of what? Languages. And he gathers them together in one place. And verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. And they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And verse 7, they were, or excuse me, verse 6, each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished 
And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Do you see what God is doing here at Pentecost? Pentecost is the anti-Babel. He's reversing it. And he's reversing it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Just as God dispersed man in his rebellion, God is gathering together people from every tongue, every nation, every socioeconomic structure to be in his church centered around not a building, not a task, not human pride, but Jesus. Do you long for that day? When you will understand everyone and you will be understood? Do you long for true community? The only place that that will be found is in God's church. Not a building, not an individual congregation, but in the people of God corporately gathered together to worship Jesus. This is the lesson we learn from the Tower of Babel. That we can follow our natural instincts and rebel against God and find pain and death and loss in pride and disobedience or we can follow the Lord Jesus Christ putting all of our hope and trust in Him and there we find true rest, true meaning, and true community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have shown us through this wonderful story that You are active in history and in our lives. That You interrupt our sin. That You point us to the cross. Lord, we ask this morning that You would remind us that we only find meaning in Jesus. That we only have community in Jesus. Lord, Draw us closer together as your people, even as we partake of the reminder that you have set before us in your supper. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.